Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good. If you're just joining us, um, we've been working our way through a series called True Community. And a big part of true community um, is we all long for it, we all want to be connected in deep relationships with people, and yet most of us find it actually very difficult to achieve in real life. And so we've been walking through different passages of Scripture, trying to understand first what true community is as God defines it. And then in the last couple of weeks, what we've been looking at are some things that work against true community. And this is not a Photoshop thing. This is actually a real situation up in Canada in a real neighborhood. And if you live in Chicagoland, more and more, this is something you're going to see is people buying an older house in a neighborhood and then just bulldozing the whole thing and building this gigantic McMansion right next door to a more modest-sized house and thereby lowering everybody else's property value. So you'll see this happening everywhere. And what you see is when one house gets built like this, It has a residual effect on the rest of the neighborhood. Everybody picks up their game a little bit, and you see new fences going up, new new, um, landscaping, because when you see something like that right next to you, it produces feelings in us that are hard to suppress. Now, I want you to pause for a moment before we even move much further into this. Pause for a moment. Think about somebody in your life who you maybe envy. Now, it could be something as casual as, I really envy that guy's golf swing. I don't know how, it just it looks so effortless. Maybe it's that you envy somebody's physical fitness or beauty, um, their youth. <laughs> I find myself more and more envying people's youth. I'm like, you young people don't even know how good it is to be young. And, you know, like, so maybe there's something like that. Or maybe it's something like you just, you envy somebody's home or their car, or, or their, their, um, their, uh, their wealth, their net worth. Maybe it runs a little deeper than that. Maybe you envy the way that somebody, it, it seems so effortless, how they maintain their happiness, how spirituality comes so easily for them, how they stay optimistic, or they bear burdens that are knocking you out of commission, and you see them getting through it, and it seems like, wow, why is it so easy for you? Maybe you envy somebody because they seem to have found real faith. Or maybe you, you see their marriage and their relationship or their, the relationship with a boyfriend or girlfriend and it looks like it just clicks and you haven't enjoyed anything like that all your life. And, and so maybe as you're looking around the world, there's somebody who has something you want and you don't have it and it's producing what we might call envy or covetousness. Now, just pause, because if that may not describe everyone in this room, but if I were a betting man, I'd place odds that most of us in this room have had somebody that we've envied or even still have somebody today whose life represents those things we want for ourselves. So can I just invite you to just pause for a second? Do you, do you have that person in your mind? Do you? Now, Pause for another minute and consider this. That person you envy who has that life or those possessions which you envy, how, is, how have those feelings affected the relationship you have with that person? Is it neutral to envy someone relationally? It absolutely is not. Envy touches our relationships with one another. Envy touches our relationships because it reframes the way that we think about our fellow human being. We start to think about them in terms of what they have and what they represent rather than who they are. And that's why I really believe envy has a very toxic effect on community. And I think it's a more prevalent problem than most of us are willing to acknowledge that envy has a pretty large role in our lives and in the way that we interact with one another. Now, um, I'm going to use the word envy interchangeably with a few other ideas because in my heart I'm convinced that envy and these other dynamics all arise out of the same basic source. 
So I'm going to use the word envy interchangeably with things like the worship of personal happiness. This idea that I, my being happy is the most important goal of my life. And I'm also going to use the word envy um, interchangeably with things like this entitlement that we feel that my life should be better than what it is now. This offendedness, this indignation that this life I have is the life I've got when I should have that person's life. That feeling of entitlement that what I have is less than what I deserve and I want more. Are you with me so far? Now, I'm not saying all those things have no basis in reality. They're totally invalid. But those feelings all arise out of the same basic spiritual well. And so I'm going to use those concepts fairly interchangeably. And for the message, I'm going to draw primarily from James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And here's, here's what it says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, maybe we're not all equally guilty of envy, but I think we need to to soberly acknowledge that this dynamic is present in many of our lives. And if we take a casual attitude towards envy, it will do its damage without our even knowing it. And so this morning, I'm going to shine the spotlight on this human dynamic of envy and all its related cousins, hoping that somehow through it, we will become more aware of how much of a grip this has on our lives, how it motivates the things we do, the things we chase, the things that make us feel good about our lives. And hopefully, as we look at God's word and he shines the light of truth on it, it will empower us to rise above some of that and be able to be free from it and free also then to build real community, real relationship with God and with one another and even with ourselves. So let's look at a few aspects of envy that I think arise out of this passage of Scripture. And the first is the divisiveness of envy. I really believe that right from the get-go, envy divides people. Remember this, James is writing this letter to a community of Christian people. And yet he presumes that fights and quarrels are rampant among them because they were. He was hearing the news of the scattered Christian community who he had once shepherded and persecution had driven to far-flung places. And now he's writing a letter to people he once used to pastor. And he's saying to them, look, I'm hearing things about your, your community, that among you are fights and quarrels. And get this, you, you understand that the New Testament was not originally written in English. English wouldn't be invented for a very long time. It was originally written in Greek. Or, or parts in Aramaic and translated to Greek. And so what you're getting then are words that are brought into English. It's helpful then to sometimes look at the original word that was used in the original language because it produces some insights. And this is one of those cases. The words fights and quarrels actually are translating Greek words that usually are used in reference to national warfare. Like when... when um, one country goes to war against another. We're not talking about your garden variety conflict where you're like, man, I'm so annoyed by him today, but we'll get over it tomorrow. No, I'm talking about like, we don't do anything with that family. Uh-uh. We are in a feud with them. I don't, we don't use that word anymore. It's not like the Hatfields and McCoys, but such lines of conflict, you will see them all the time, even among Christians. Oh, no, no, we don't play with their kids and we don't go to their house for dinner. Because even in the Christian community, we're talking about really deep-running, deep-seated conflict. When we see them walking down the hall, we go to the other side of the hall, and their very presence in the church constantly brings up the question, should we keep going to this church while they keep coming here? This church ain't big enough for the both of us. And, you know, it's that kind of deep conflict we're talking about. And, and what James says is that kind of conflict exists among you. And where does it come from? Where does it come from? Well, here's another interesting Greek word because he says, doesn't it come 
from your desires that battle within you. Do you know what that, you'll recognize this one. I often don't pull out the Greek words, but you might recognize this one. The, the word he uses for desires is hedonon. That's the word from which we derive the English hedonism. Do you know what hedonism is? It's the philosophy that the pursuit of pleasure is the chief goal of life. That when all other things are said and done, the greatest goal of any human life is to attain maximum pleasure. That's not as simple as, oh, I just want to eat yummy things and be in comfortable cars. It runs deeper than that. It's this idea that the greatest goal of a human life is to achieve personal satisfaction and happiness. And do you understand that, that if that's the philosophy you operate on as a Christian, you're going to have some tension. That that desire that rules your life is going to create a battle within you because that's exactly at odds with God's plan for your life. Most people take it as a given that that's an uncriticizable statement. What, how could you criticize this statement? You know, really one of the great goals in life is to be happy. And everyone in the world will go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, of course, that's what it's all about. Is it really what it's all about, though, from a God-centered perspective? Has God made human beings primarily to experience happiness on the earth and then die? And you can't be casual about how you answer that question because it has horrific consequences if you get the answer wrong. We're talking about a foundational question of being human. What is the purpose for which God made us? Is it to achieve happiness before we die? Well, I'm going to tell you, happiness is a big part of it. I'm trying to put together a weekend trip with some guys to play tennis in Florida this winter because tennis makes me happy. I'm not saying that happiness should be avoided like we're a bunch of monks wearing sandpaper clothing and eating horrible tasting food. I'm not trying to advocate that kind of view. But listen, to there's a far cry from saying happiness is the chief goal of a human life. You'd be amazed how much that is the true religion of the United States of America. The true religion of our country, uncritically evaluated, is this. The greatest thing we can achieve before we die is to be truly, deeply happy. But that is not what God has made us for. Primarily, God has made us to know Him, to be loved by Him, to love Him back, and in that we will find something even more lasting than happiness. We will find true joy. We will find our life as we give it up. We will find something more enduring, more eternal than feelings of pleasure and satisfaction. So you understand that when somebody's chief goal in life is to be happy, that is going to create what James says, a battle within you, because that desire, that true religion, is working against so often the agenda of God in his religion of drawing us to himself, of revealing why he made us and who made us in the first place. Are you following with me so far? I'm not, please don't hear me saying, go home and sell all your fun stuff and never go on vacation again. But hear me say this, if you're living primarily to be happy, you will achieve exactly the opposite of that as a Christian. Because as a follower of Christ, you cannot reconcile both of those religions in the same life. And a person who is in conflict within themselves will cause conflict everywhere else they go. Do you understand that? When a person is waging war within their own heart for two religions, two masters, two life-defining goals, to love and please God and to love and please myself, if that's the kind of war raging in me, what kind of effect am I going to have on the people around me? Do you realize that most human conflict is caused by people who are deeply in conflict within themselves? They don't know what peace is. They instantly blame everyone else. You're the reason I'm unhappy. But the reality is you are the reason you're unhappy. You have a divided heart. The very being, the fabric of who we are is being torn in half in your life because you're trying to reconcile two things that cannot be made to be joined together. People who are not at peace in their own hearts cannot form peace in the relationships around them. It is simply not possible. And as you hear me say that, think about some of the relationships in your life that are strained and ripping at the edges. 
And I will bet you it's because either you or that other person has not yet found real peace in themselves. You may think that you fight a lot with the people you're closest to, but the real problem is not that you're fighting with them. But as James points out, where do all these conflicts come from? Don't they come from the battle within your own heart first? Sin first divides us, and then it divides us from one another and from God. And at the most rudimentary level, I think we can define sin as trying to reconcile things that are against God with things that are for God. Trying to have our cake and eat it too. And do you see then that there is this toxic effect when a person builds their whole life around the pursuit of pleasure? Listen to what the writer of Proverbs says about this. A heart at peace gives life to the body. This is so powerful. But envy rots the bones. It rots you. It causes you to frame all of your life around how happy you are and how happy others are and how that reflects on how unhappy you are in comparison. And it makes everything a competition. It makes you unable to be at peace within yourself. And so he rightly says, envy rots the bones. And when that's what you carry into community, you will not have a good effect on any of those relationships. In fact, when you build your whole life around the pursuit and attainment of happiness and pleasure, you will come to regard every other person in one of two ways, most likely. Either they will be an obstacle to your being happy, or they will be an instrument to use to become more happy. Do you understand? And I'm I'm not talking about just wanting to be happy. I'm talking about happiness as your true religion. Being happy as the overriding, defining goal of your human life. If that's what you're really after. And don't be so quick to say, oh, that's not me. I go to church. I'm finding that so many people in the church are really building their lives around this true religion that what I really want is to be happy. And when I'm not happy, I'm not okay with God because God's whole job is to help me get happy. And if I'm not happy, then God's not doing his job. So why should I do my job for God? Do you see that dynamic at work? I see it all the time among Christians. I see it all the time in me. I hope that doesn't shock you. Um, I'm not perfect. Despite many of your, your hopes that I am, you know, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm nowhere near it. I see these things right here. And when I want to be happy above all things, either your happiness gets in the way of my happiness, you're an obstacle to me, Or you're somebody that I can curry favor with. If I network with you, if I get on your good side, then all of your good stuff will flow over into my life. I don't want to get that person mad at me because good stuff comes to my life through that relationship. I'm not going to mess with that. Do you see what that does to community when you start relating to other people either as obstacles to be overcome or people who saddle up and ride to get what you want? Do you realize then that we cannot actually build community when we look at other people that way. But that is inevitable when being happy is the real goal of your heart. God did not make us simply to be happy, but to belong to him, to live for him. And in that, we will find real joy, lasting joy. And when happiness is your greatest goal, when your life is defined by the envy of wanting what you don't yet have, then often the happiness of others becomes something to resent rather than celebrate. We come to see somebody else's gain as my loss. You see that what they get that's good makes you feel worse about the good stuff you ain't got yet. Do you know what I'm talking about? Maybe you just had one of those weeks where your piece of garbage minivan is falling apart and your kids have put milkshakes and ketchup on the floor and, and then... There's this person pulling up to church in their new minivan. You're like, mm-hmm, whatever. Yeah. Must be nice. And so even though they're so happy, like, oh, look, we got such a good deal. Do you want to see it? And you're like, yeah, all right. Uh, yeah, you're, you have a nice car, all right. 
But it's hard to be really happy. In fact, you start going, oh, maybe we pay those people too much. Maybe this. You say things. Why? Because in your heart, envy has taken such deep hold that you are no longer capable of celebrating the blessings of others. Their good fortune only shines a light on your misfortune. That's the way it works when this thing has got a hold of you. I believe one of the most reliable measures of spiritual maturity is the ability to truly celebrate and rejoice over the blessings that come to other people's lives. To walk into somebody's life who has everything you want. You run into an old friend after like 10 years apart and you've been trying to, you've been lamenting the, the breakdown of your, they're like, oh yeah, I just started running triathlons and I'm an Ironman. Look, shredded. And you're like, crud. I should start running. And you look at that and rather than going, man, I'm so happy for you. In midlife, you found a second wind. I'm so grateful that you might have just added five years to your life. You're like, whatever. I think you're so great. Think you're better than me? And you go and drown your sorrows in a box of Twinkies. And that's the way it works when your heart is gripped by envy. How much is envy and the worship of personal happiness dividing the relationships in your life? Let me give you a second aspect of envy. It's the destructiveness of envy. The destructiveness of envy. And it's important to note that when we talk about envy, we're not just talking about a shallow, passing um, affinity to something. We're not talking about, oh, man, we have such a nice car. Maybe we should get a new car. I wish we could get a new car. It's not anything that shallow or superficial. When we talk about biblical envy, we are talking about something that runs very, very deep, you guys. Really, really deep. Something that is, that's got roots anchored to the very core of what makes you, you. And that's really what James is getting after. This phrase, you want something, is actually one word in the Greek. And it's a very powerful, potent word. It doesn't just mean, oh, you want something. Like, you know, I'm a little peckish. I want something. Do I want an Oreo or do I want a Pop-Tart? It's not that simple. It's more like, I want something. And until I get it, I will not be happy. This is the defining want of my life. And without getting this, I will hold my thanksgiving, my happiness hostage. I refuse to even hint at being satisfied until I see this happen in my life. Because this is not just a passing want. It is a life-defining, deeply anchored, heart foundation want. It's a very powerful statement. And James says, this is what it is to be in the grips of the idolatry of happiness of envy, is to really want something so much that you want that thing to the exclusion of every other desire. You know, I think becoming a, a, a parent has really made this apparent for me. You like that? Because I realize your children can be lectured all day long, but they know what you really love, what you really want. And if I get your children, pull them aside and ask them, come on, tell me, honestly, what does daddy love? What does daddy love? What does mommy? Sometimes your kids come over to our house to play and I hear them talk without you. I'm like, oh, okay. I got a little window into their family because that kid is learning to talk like that from somewhere, okay? And I wonder how much my children are embarrassing the pants off of me when they're out among your houses. Oh, I get it. Our kids know what we love. Daddy loves football. <laughs> More than Jesus? Maybe. <laughs> it sure seems like it because he gets so excited about football, but I never seem to get that excited about Jesus. It's that thing you want that everyone who knows you even a little will say, come on. Do you have the courage to put on a white Hanes t-shirt and let everyone else in the church get a magic marker and write down on your shirt, here's the one word that I think defines what you want. Here's what I see. I associate with you. My one word association with you is Xbox. DVDs. I don't know if I have the courage to let you speak that much truth into my life. You want something. It doesn't matter how much rhetoric you're spewing. 
your life screams it loud and clear, doesn't it? Just like mine does. You want something. Are you getting what you want? Because God has promised this to us. Because he made us for himself, if what we want above all things is him, we will get him. He said it more than once. If you search for me with all of your heart, you will find me. God will not ever play hard to get. He will not play hide and seek. He runs to those who run to him. And so if what you really want is God, you will get God. You will find that relationship deeply enriching. You will find the joy that you've longed for in that relationship. You will find the hope, the purpose, the meaning, all of it in him. If what you really want is him, you will find him and find it. But then what James says is if you want something else, you will probably experience something like this. You want something, but you don't get it. You just don't get it. I think when we want something other than God, that thing takes on a mythical importance in our lives. It becomes symbolic of every other desire. I just have to have that. I can't be happy until I have that life. And when you want that that badly, even God is pushed out of the center of your life. And you'll push him out either because he's to blame for what you don't have, or he'll be invited in selectively when he can offer you what you really want. We will even start to use God to get what our real God is. And so I'm asking you an honest, reflective question, not to produce guilt, but to produce truth in you. What do you really, really want? Now, here's the the scary part. When you want something other than God and you want it that badly, something will start to happen in the human heart. That desire will become so consuming that you will allow nothing to get in the way of that desire. Here's what James writes. You want it, but you don't get it. You can't find that satisfaction. And so you kill and you covet. There seems to be no limit to the destructive power that is unleashed when a desire for something other than God takes a central place in our lives. Now, don't be so quick. I read all these commentators dealing with this one verse, and all of them like trying to make excuses for James. Oh, surely he couldn't have meant murder because among a community of Christians, murder would never happen, right? Oh, yeah, because Christians have never, ever killed other Christians ever, right? What a bunch of baloney. Don't be so quick to presume that this is just figurative and not literal. I believe that when some other desire gets a hold of a person... We start to see red. It starts to blind us to what's happening in us. Haven't you ever seen somebody in the grips of an addiction and the sheer self-destructive potential is staggering, isn't it? And you do an intervention. You try to tell them, look, the way you're living is destroying you. They're like, get out of my face. How dare you preach at me? I know what I'm doing. I could stop at any moment. Have you seen it? When a desire gets such a hold of a person, no one can talk to them. No one can help them to see. The only way they're ever going to see is to crash and burn. That is the pathway of somebody who worships something other than God, is that in the pursuit of it, there is no longer a cap on their life of the destructive power that can be unleashed. So that even actual, literal killing is possible. Now, I don't want to shock you, But I have heard over the course of my pastoral ministry, people say with great seriousness, at one point I literally thought about killing that person. Now, what they often say is, I would have killed them and then myself shortly after. I couldn't live with myself, but I can't live with them either. And the the scary part to me was they weren't kidding. This wasn't like, (laughs) just joking. They were serious. They were looking at me like, I seriously thought, I'm just going to end it for both of us. What's the point? Because I'm so unhappy. And after all, isn't happiness what life is supposed to be about? How tragic. But even if you don't descend to literal murder, 
that kind of life-gripping desire for something will make it so that nothing is sacred, nothing is safe. Anything that stands in the way of you getting what you want is fair game for destruction. You have, you've seen it, I've seen it. I've seen people kill a marriage in the pursuit of what they thought was happiness and freedom. I've seen people kill an unborn child because the pursuit of happiness led to the production of unhappiness and they erased the problem. I've seen people kill a friendship. I've even seen people kill a church because they want something and they're not getting it. Nothing is sacred. Nothing is safe. I will destroy the whole earth to get what I want. And why shouldn't I? And the scary thing is they will feel totally justified all the while because if I'm not happy, who else deserves to be happy? I owe the world a good swift kick because everyone else gets theirs and I don't get mine. And it's not fair. Now, I feel compassion for a person who's been beaten down enough that they start to believe that. And that's why I'm not saying this in a spirit of scolding. I'm saying it in the spirit of somebody waking you up because you're late for school. That attitude is killing you. It's blinding you to things that are destroying your life. How much destructive power has been unleashed in your life because of the worship, the idolatry of happiness? Is it possible that you're killing your relationships? You're killing your, your loved one's ability to respect you, to relate to you, because you are really chasing something else. When you look at them, you don't even see them. You see a little checkbox in your life. I got that. Moving on. And you look at this person sitting next to you, and you don't really even see them and what makes them tick, what's important to them. All you see is really I'm still on the pursuit of getting what I want out of this life. How much destructive power has been unleashed? Let me land this plane now. The third aspect of deceitfulness I see very clearly in this passage is the deceitfulness of envy. I think the tragedy of envy, of the worship of happiness, is that in the pursuit of that very happiness, we set our lives on a path to become truly unhappy. This is, what, this is the plot that drives so much of the greatest Hollywood stories and epic novels, isn't it? Just unpack the, the conflict, the central conflict in some of the greatest stories in literature and film, and what you'll find is this very story, that in the pursuit of happiness, a person's life becomes unraveled. What they realize was happiness was always somewhere else than what they were chasing. Am I, am I not right? Half the romantic comedies are like, I want the hottie, but really the one that's naughty is my true... Ha-. You know, it's like... She was right there, faithful, loving you. Like, oh, duh, why couldn't I see it? And it takes us 90 minutes to get to that realization. Isn't that really it? We think we know what will make us happy, and we set off pursuing it, and it doesn't really build around God. And in the pursuit of that thing, we are literally destroying our lives trying to get happy. Now, it's easier to see in people who are wrestling with substance abuse and addiction. Just look at the squalor of a crack house. I actually Googled crack house under images. And it was so depressing, I didn't even want to put one in the slides. Just looking at picture after picture of the squalor, the filth. And these people are laying around in nirvana. They think in their minds they are in heaven. And you look at the hell they actually live in. Some of those houses are so contaminated, so decayed, they have to be burned to the ground. They can't even be rehabbed. The rot has sunk into the bones of the building. When you see that, you realize that that's easy to see. That's obvious. A person who wants the happiness of a drug high sows the seeds of their own unraveling. But I've also seen marriages torn apart by selfishness. Sex addiction, unfaithfulness, thinking I'm going to get happy. And all the while, what you're doing is destroying the very thing that God provided to make you happy. This is Satan's great narrative. 
Because he lost out, he rejoices when he cheats us as well. When we participate in our own destruction and we think we're winning, that makes him quite happy because he, we're doing his job for him, are we not? Listen to this. It not only deceives us inwardly, but it begins to bring deceit into our relationship with God. Look what it says in, this, in the last part of, of verse 2. You quarrel and fight you do not have because you do not ask God. Now, if I have such a gripping desire, why would I not ask God? Why would I not ask him? Doesn't it seem like a no-brainer? Ask him, you'll get it. Because I think the dynamic there, at least in part, is this. We don't ask God for our heart's desire because we blame him for what we lack. We no longer trust him to provide. We assume that God is the unfair coordinator of this injustice. Why do they have brand new furniture and we still have milk crates for my dorm room to rest our lamp on? Where is the fairness of God in that? Why do they have such effortless happiness in their marriage And why is it so hard to find it in mine? Why are their kids so polite and my kids are such barbarians? Why has everybody else found their mate and I'm wandering through life alone? Where is the fairness of God in my life story? And because we come to believe that, because we frame even God's role in our lives around what we really want, Rather than saying, God, come into my story, we indict God because of our story. We look at our lives and say, see, if this is my story, God, you must not be good or you must not be fair or you must not be strong enough. And I blame you. And as a result, we stop asking God because we somehow believe he's responsible for my sad story. When our lives are defined by a desire other than God, We're deceived even in how we look at God. We start to cast blame on him rather than clinging to him in hope. So that the very moment when we should be turning to God more, we turn our backs on him and say, I'm done with him. What's the point of turning to God? What has he done for me lately? And I ask you then, where is hope to be found outside of that? Where else will you go? And then James says, when you finally do get around to asking God, you don't get what you ask for because only a horrible father would give you what you're asking for when you have evil motives. If I knew that my son wanted to buy ammunition for my airsoft gun to shoot his brother, and he said, Dad, can I have $10? And I knew that's what he wanted. Would it be loving for me to give my son what he asks for? That's an obvious question, right? I mean, of course it would be unloving for me to grant it because I know what you're going to do with it. Why would I give you what you're asking for when what you want to get, you will use for destruction? That's That's another aspect of the deceitfulness that covers over our relationship with God when our lives are gripped by envy and the worship of happiness. We actually think we can trick God. Uh, Lord, would you help me um, get a really big house so that I can um, bless many people with hospitality? And, you know, some people actually do bless others with hospitality. But if that's not the real reason you're asking, do you really think God's like, oh, man, that's so convincing. (laughs) Got to give them the house. They made such a good case. Wow, do you hear those? That wording is so poetic. God sees through it. He knows what we really want. And because he loves us, he will not give us the things we ask for if they're at odds with what he wants for us. For the the person gripped by the worship of happiness, the fact that God doesn't answer their prayers only reinforces the guilt of God, doesn't it? I ask him just for the same things that make her so happy. How come he doesn't give it to me? Because you don't want it for the same reason she wanted it. It means something different to you than it did to her. That's why he won't let you have it. Because he loves you. And until you're free of that idolatry, he will not give you what you ask. 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. 
Paul says godliness with contentment is great gain. So maybe as I wrap up this message, you're thinking, okay, that speaks. I'm, I'm going to make sure that I send this link to somebody I know because that person's gripped by envy. I'm going to make sure they listen. Please don't use this sermon to preach at other people. That's not why I'm giving it. I, I really don't want you to clobber someone with these words. These words are for you. And I think most of us will walk out thinking this was for somebody else. But I'm really asking you, dwell on it a little bit. And maybe you don't see yourself as envious, but let's flip the script a little bit and look at it from the other side. Because the opposite of envy is contentment. So I ask you, how content are you with your portion and your path in life? How okay are you with the life God has assigned to you in this moment? Don't mistake that for meaning you can't have hopes or plans or long for anything better. But right now, in this moment, can you accept the life God's given you, knowing that the story is not finished? Or are you at this moment unable to accept your present life as coming from God? That the only life you will accept from God is the life you demand that he gives you. And until you get it, you're not really alive in him. You have no accountability to him. You owe him nothing. Until he gives you the life you really want, you're on stasis, you're on hold. Time out with God. I will show up and be yours when you show up and give me mine. How content are you to say, this day... My lot, my portion, my path is God's plan for me. And maybe tomorrow will be different. Maybe tomorrow will be better. But I can accept this day because I accept God and his plan for me. I really think the freedom from envy begins with the ability to accept my portion in this world. That's where peace comes from. And then the things you want can find their proper meaning in your life. This is the last thing I'll say. I think when we can say along with Asaph, David's, King David's praise leader, the words in Psalm 73, 25 to 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. When you can be satisfied in saying that and have nothing left in parentheses, I think then you'll begin the journey towards freedom from envy, the ability to enter into true peace with God, the other people around you, and even with yourself. And I think when we bring that into community, We have half a chance of building something great here. So I ask you, as you go home, dwell on this question a little bit. How much of your life, your choices, your direction, ambitions are defined by a slavish pursuit of happiness, accomplishment, and how much of it is really driven by a pursuit of God? I think that's a question worth wrestling with for more than a few minutes. And why don't I invite you into a time just of doing that, just for five minutes. This was a heavy sermon for me to write this week because I had to confront some stuff in my own life. So I need a few minutes now, and I'm going to invite you into it as well. How, How much has this stuff grabbed hold of you and robbed you of peace? Maybe this morning, as you're reflecting, your life is locked in a conflict with someone else right now. Maybe what God's saying to you this morning is you've been blaming that other person for your unhappiness for a very long time. You're holding them prisoner in your heart because you believe they failed to give you the life you deserve. Maybe it's your parents' your spouse, somebody else who has power in your life. Maybe what you need to repent of and to admit to them and to God is, no, I don't think it's their fault. I think it's what I've brought into this relationship. 
Maybe that's really what God wants to put in your heart this morning as you think about this. Maybe you are at war within your own heart because you want two things that will never share one life. What you want in your heart and what God wants for you are very different things. And God is saying to you this morning, pick one. Just pick one. And what he's really saying is pick me. Now I feel very compelled to say this, so I'm just going to say it in obedience to the Spirit of God. But I believe that this morning, in this room, some people have reached a point of real repentance in their hearts. God is stirring, He's working, and He's beginning to show them the wrong engine that's been driving their heart. If you're attached to that person, And you've been wounded by the cycle in their life. I'm going to ask you also to release them from your prison. If there is a move in someone's life to repent and turn towards you, And I charge you in the name of God to respond to that with grace and an open heart. To encourage repentance. To experience joy again. I just want you to know that if you want to stop pursuing happiness as the idol of your life, and begin to pursue God. All it takes is one simple prayer. God sent me on that changing path. He will start to respond to you. So I just want to give us another minute to let this all soak in. And then I'm going to pray for us. Let's pray together. God, I really do ask that you will do the work of setting us free from these powerful idols that have such a grip on our lives. The deceit that they produce in our lives, making us believe we're making our own choices when we are slaves to these desires. Set us free. Help us to desire you above all things. To want you because then we will actually have you. We will find satisfaction in you. I pray because you are the only one powerful enough to do it. I pray in the name of Jesus in this room right now that you would set captives free, God. Bring freedom and liberty into this place and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. The deceit that they produce in our lives, making us believe we're making our own choices when we are slaves to these desires. Set us free Help us to desire you above all things. To want you because then we will actually have you. We will find satisfaction in you. I pray because you are the only one powerful enough to do it. I pray in the name of Jesus in this room right now that you would set captives free, God. Bring freedom and liberty into this place and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen.
pray together. God, I really do ask that you will do the work of setting us free from these powerful idols that have such a grip on our lives. The deceit that they produce in our lives, making us believe we're making our own choices when we are slaves to these desires. Set us free. Help us to desire you above all things. To want you because then we will actually have you. We will find satisfaction in you. I pray because you are the only one powerful enough to do it. I pray in the name of Jesus in this room right now that you would set captives free, God. Bring freedom and liberty into this place. And be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray together. God, I really do ask that you will do the work of setting us free from these powerful idols that have such a grip on our lives the deceit that they produce in our lives, making us believe we're making our own choices when we are slaves to these desires. Set us free. Help us to desire you above all things. To want you because then we will actually have you. We will find satisfaction in you. I pray because you are the only one powerful enough to do it. I pray in the name of Jesus in this room right now that you would set captives free, God. Bring freedom and liberty into this place and be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.